Welcome to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. And welcome to our new project, Our Public House. Should I just go one other? Yeah. I'm Josephine Burton, Artistic Director at Dash, and we're in the middle of visiting different parts of the country to support people in writing speeches. Food, heating, transport, toiletries, the internet, light. These things we would call essential to our everyday. Yet 91% of households receiving universal credit have gone without at least one of these things in the past year. Gay won't go away if you don't say gay. It will just go into hiding like it was in the early 1900s. Issues like this are brought up to distract us from the real issues such as economy, health, defence. Politicians should stop doing this and deal with the real issues that affect people's lives. If a drag queen reads a story to school children, they will still be the same children afterwards. We've been with female prisoners at HMP Style, activists with Citizens UK in Brighton, and young people from across Cornwall, and many more. In all of these pockets of communities, we've been hearing about what they care about, what they want to change, and what they feel is being ignored by decision makers. Housing is at the heart of people's lives. A safe place to call home is one of the most fundamental building blocks of human life. Rent control is not just about money in pockets, it's about securing safe housing as a right and giving local people the stability they need to make choices and flourish. Over 417 anti-LGBTQ plus bills have been introduced in state legislations across the US since the beginning of the year including a ban on gender-affirming healthcare for trans youths and banning books for mentions of LGBTQ+. You may be thinking, why does this affect me? I live in the UK. Well, when the US does something, other countries have historically followed. Also, the UK is slowly, sneakily bringing in the laws, like how they block Scotland's law to allow transgender people to self-identify, which would just make it easier for them to get the correct gender marks on IDs or passports. Going forward, it is important to protect and keep LGBTQ plus life safe because we are the future. We are the future voters of the world. We are the future workers. We are the future prime ministers and presidents. We are the future parents and teachers, the future writers and preachers. We are the future of a diverse and accepting world. Put the litter in the bin. It's free. It's worth saving the planet for the next generation. Football can't come home if we don't have a planet. <laughs> So the big project at Dash Arts at the moment is Albion, where we're exploring what we mean by England and what we mean by Englishness. And I really felt the most amazing way to understand that and explore that would be to listen to people, particularly listen to what they feel about things, what they feel passionate about, what they want to change in their communities, and together create some sort of reflection of the state of the nation. And we've been truly doing that. We're effectively documenting a country as it approaches the next election and creating this extraordinary picture of, of a country at a crossroads. Maybe we're just all doomed. That might be what you're thinking, where your heads are at. And to be honest, you could be right. But the only thing we can do now is to place the blame on the heads of the people who deserve it. It's the only very small chance we have of saving humanity's future. So ultimately, this is less of a plan of action. And it's more of just a wake-up call, a wake-up to the horrors of our own creation. 
We need to put a name on the evil behind global warming before we can actually do anything about it. And that's all I'm asking of you. Shift the blame. Stop looking at what you're doing and look at the billionaires. Look at the corporations. Look at the heads of state and the furious industries. That's all I'm asking of you. To look. The end of the world isn't your fault. It's theirs. I'm in UK for the last 22 years. Carries behind me experience of a qualified nurse. I have gone through lots of ups and downs. If I can change anything, I would like to spread peace, love and harmony throughout the world. We have teamed up with some wonderful academics from the University of Birmingham and the University of East Anglia who truly believe that we all have the ability to speak passionately and clearly and eloquently about the things that we believe in, but we don't necessarily have the tools. And together we have built a workshop structure that do that. One of the academics is Alan Finlayson, who is a political theorist and scientist. He's the professor of political and social theory at the University of East Anglia, and he has been co-leading the workshops with me. Our podcast producer, Marie, caught up with him during a lunch break at one of our recent workshops to unpick or unpack more about his interest in rhetoric. So as, a, as an academic, I have a strong research interest in rhetoric and in political speech, in the history of the ways in which people have thought about how to make the best speeches and be persuasive and of their relationship to politics, and in analysing contemporary political speeches and how they work and thinking about whether they work in ways that are good or bad, both in themselves and good and bad for democracy, for the kind of politics and the kind of challenges we face. But out of that has come an interest in teaching people how to do it, which is actually where the first rhetoricians were. Back in ancient Greece, they began as people who said they could teach others how to make arguments in law courts and in political spaces. So there's a strong connection between studying and learning about how political speeches work and the teaching of them. So I've been teaching to students in my own university at, at University of East Anglia and then slowly began to develop with colleagues uh, some ways of teaching that to students outside of the classroom but in the university and so they could take part in speech events and speech competitions. And we've done speech training at music festivals and with school kids. This project is a, sort of, is a follow-on, working with other academics and talking to speechwriters and just thinking generally about the state of political speech in the present day. As part of that project, we bumped into Dash Art, as it were. In fact, they were next to us um, in a tent at Latitude Festival, also thinking about political speech. So we had conversations for a long time and thought, well, how could we do something together where their understanding of performance and theatre and staging and involving people in theatre in that way would interact with teaching people to be rhetoricians and give speeches that are uh, powerful, persuasive, but also uh, hopefully true. Right, because that word rhetoric, I've heard it used more negatively than positively, as I have done in this project. Yeah, generally the term is used in a disparaging way, isn't it? When we say something is rhetoric, there's an implication that you're saying it's mere rhetoric, that it's kind of empty words, maybe, or verbose, over-the-top words, or words without meaning or substance. Um, that's, a, that's always been there <laughs> since, since the invention of the term, a sense that is it, 
is it really rigorous and proper speech, like philosophers or scientists or theologians or something? Is it just hot air? But the flip side of that is that it's also a necessary part of public and political life. People don't always spontaneously or naturally agree about what should be done or what shouldn't be done. How do we resolve that? Well, we could have a fight. Somebody could buy everybody's support with money. We could bribe people. You could threaten people in some other way. Or you can have some kind of verbal dispute, an argument in a parliament or in a TV studio or wherever it might be. And if you're going to do that, then you're going to have people who are doing rhetoric, trying to find ways to present their argument and to present their case in a way that persuades others to share it. And that's how people reach agreement. It's also how people can be motivated to support and act in the name of particular causes. If you want people to fight in a war or if you want people to give to a charity, you want people to understand the cause and feel motivated, moved by it. Seems to me there's nothing intrinsically wrong with any of those situations. Of course people can do that in ways that are unfair or that involve lying or distorting. And of course you can do speeches that just try to ramp up people's emotions and scare them or frighten them. But from my point of view, that's all the more reason why people should know about rhetoric. Because to know when that's what's happening and be able to judge between rhetoric that is just manipulative and rhetoric that is trying to help understanding and help things be intelligent to people and help them make decisions. Do you find that when you're in an argument with your wife, this skill set (laughs) is helpful to you? Firstly, where did you hear that I have arguments with my wife? (laughs) That seems like a question that is designed to trap me in the first place. That's a good... I would say... (laughs) Well, no. That's because rhetoric isn't necessarily about personal encounters and exchanges, right? It's partly there for for when we're making arguments or trying to explain things to larger audiences that we don't know everything about them uh, and they might be quite diverse and we're trying to find the forms of communication that can bring people together and can help people see things. I suppose you could say when you are arguing with your partner, if you're just trying to explain your point of view, at some level you're doing rhetoric. You're trying to find a way that makes makes something clear to somebody else. And that means, at its best, not just... Uh, trying to force them verbally or through shouting to see the way, things the way you see them, but also thinking about how things look to somebody else. I would say that's the key thing about rhetoric. That you know, the, the first sort of proposition of the rhetoricians is that you need to adapt your arguments to your audience. And lots of people say, oh, well, that just goes to show it's mendacious. You know, we think it's a virtue to stick to your truth. Yeah, to say what you believe and be authentic. Um, and that's kind of what's important. But actually, I disagree, right? And say, actually, you know what? The way I see things is going to be different from the way other people see things. Can I understand how they see things? And how might I step outside myself and change my argument or explanation in a way that makes it clearer to them? That isn't giving up on what I believe, but it is recognising that other people have other things going on in their life, see other things and don't see other things, and finding some way to reach a a common ground and a common agreement. 
So that's important for politics, obviously. It's also important for teaching. I do that. The essence of teaching is trying to find out what is it that someone else doesn't know so that you can explain it to them. And maybe it's also important for personal relationships, including marriages, that you stop at some point and go, right, what is it that somebody can't see? What are they seeing that I can't see? How can we find a way to reach some kind of common understanding? So there is a long history of speech writing and few know more about that than Henrietta van der Blom, who is a lecturer in ancient history at the University of Birmingham and our other academic partner. Obviously today we've got television, we've got other kinds of electronic media, but in the ancient world you had speech if you were trying to reach a mass audience. You could also write on a stone tablet or a bronze tablet, but then only the people who could read could actually understand it. So if you wanted to reach a huge group and potentially partially literate group, then you would have to use speech. And we know that this happened. We've got ancient sources from Greece and Rome who tell us about it, but we also actually have the speeches that they delivered. Sometimes these speeches were written down after delivery because they could memorize the speeches and deliver them in a way that not very many modern people could do unless they have a teleprompter. Um, but, but we're actually able to read those speeches. And, and what is so fascinating is that the things that they thought would uh, make an impact with their audience is something that still makes an impact with our audiences. Um, Aristotle, a great philosopher from Athens, uh, had one perspective on why that was. And one of the things that he talks about is the appeals, the three appeals to, to the audience. And one is ethos, so the appeal from the character of the speaker. One is logos, rational argument, or as I like to say, seemingly rational argument. It isn't always rational, but it can appear to be so. And finally, pathos, emotional appeal. So trying to get to the audience by appealing to their emotions or some kind of shared feeling. And these three things still work today. In the supermarket, the average strawberries travels 1,930 miles on average. This needs to stop. Did you know 46% of the food we consume in the UK has travelled from abroad? Most commonly imported foods in the UK are fruit and vegetables. I fundamentally believe that we should reduce food miles for healthier consumption. I recommend we should be eating locally grown foods. We need to spend good quality time with our children yes. and all the employers yes. need to accept it or let us work part time. Yes. yes. And Work should be flexible, help the mothers, help the kids, and it makes better for everybody. Have you ever considered being buried in a mushroom, or that this whole building could be made from mushrooms? I can't remember how I discovered uh, the mushroom coffin, but since I did, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. You won't be able to either. I know you're thinking. I know you. <laughs> I know you're still thinking about dying. Relax, mushrooms are your friend. They'll feed you, they'll clothe you, and they'll hold you when you die. <laughs> Thanks. So we're still in the thick of the project, and we're going to Oxford and to Newham in East London and also to Norwich. 
it is phenomenal really how much time we've had uh, sitting on trains and looking at the countryside and also really it's a brilliant time for us to, to debrief as a team when we're fresh out of a workshop to talk about what we've learned and finesse the project a bit more before we go back into another workshop. I have to admit that I haven't been at every single workshop and recently uh, Marie and Alan and Christina had the opportunity to catch up on a train and I wasn't there. So, hi, I'm Christina Catalina. I'm senior producer at Dashards and I'm here on a train with Alan. We've just been doing a workshop in Brighton, in a way taking the pulse of what it is that people want to talk about. We've been talking a bit about some of the common themes that we've seen up and down and across the country. I've noticed a, yeah, a real theme has been mental health provision being cut mental health services and how that's affected people all over the place and that's been across the board really from quite distinct groups like uh, people in prison to young people to people yeah adults um, from all sorts of backgrounds um, the other big theme I think has been the cost of living rising which really has then affected so many other services so a lot of the other themes as, as well I think have come from the cost of living and yeah that's one of the things that's been super interesting and kind of surprising for me I suppose that it's turned out to be quite a good way of finding out where people are at politically you know I know people who do things like go around the country and do focus groups for organizations political organizations to find out what people think about the prime minister or the opposition or about this or that issue or how they respond to this or that line so their job is to kind of take the pulse of of people when it comes to politics but actually this way you used the phrase take the pulse didn't you it turns out to be quite good because we don't tell people what to talk about we just set it up and ask them what do you want to talk about tell us the thing that you think we should do differently that we should change or stop doing and people come up with whatever it is and as you say there are an awful lot of concerns about stress and mental health and the lack of medical support for that or support in schools for young people but also the difficulty of paying the bills I think a lot of specifically housing has come up quite a lot uh, how that's becoming ever more unaffordable people concerned for themselves or for their family members so really some very core you know politicians blandly call bread and butter issues but it is basic healthcare basic psychological well-being and somewhere to keep the rain off your head people are bringing those things up and talking quite eloquently about the situation in their locality how that's playing out how that's playing out with their family and friends and what they what they think quite persuasively i would say can be done about it it's really amazing actually how how personal some of those stories are people are so prepared to share such personal stories and 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 i've also been really interested at how um how I think I thought it would be more about like bin collection or like you know moving traffic lights you know just the local local issues and and although some of the stories are local very personal stories but actually really global national issues so I've, I've really found that fascinating. The UK education education system is fixated on exam results and therefore does little to teach the skills that are needed in changing the world. Without an understanding of how society functions, of how power operates, Young people are pushed to the margins, left to watch the decline of the world they will inherit. We need to put young people in the driving seat. We need to enhance the ability of our future leaders to act now. If we don't enable them to have a seat at the table of power, they'll remain on the menu. 
I believe that the solution to this problem lies in strengthening the schools and colleges where young people are based. Schools and colleges are hubs in which, you, in which young people can experience the fullness of life, build relationships, compromise with others, build collaborative projects and ideas, trust each other and try new things together. And I said to my husband, why do people have cats if they can't afford to look after them? We haven't got money to look after them, but we will. They come first and they always will come first to us. So basically we're looking after our cats and we're looking after everyone's cats and it makes me happy and it makes them happy. So anyone who has an animal, if you can't afford to look after them, then don't have animals if you can't afford them. Wouldn't it be nice to get about quickly, not waiting for buses and traffic lights to change? Life would be so much easier if you didn't have to wait for buses and traffic lights to change. Once, though, I saw someone cross the road and a car was coming and nearly knocked her. I had to pull her back. She had started crossing when the green man was there, but then ran out of time as the lights changed too quickly. You might say that it isn't very important. You might say, get a life. But it is important. A terrible accident will hold up traffic to affect everyone. So, I say, better traffic management. It's essential. Yes. Yes. Sort out traffic lights. Sort out bus services. Sort out... <laughs> sort out Alan's handwriting. Yeah. <laughs> sort out safety. Safe sort day, yeah. out safety. Safe day. Better traffic. I'm going to sort of sit with all of these extraordinary speeches and ideas um, and re-listen to the audio recordings and to read the transcripts and start to navigate my way to creating a piece of theatre inspired and effectively co-created by the communities. And in order to do that, um, I'm going to be working with the wonderful writer and director, Jude Christian. Um, she and I are going to kind of immerse ourselves in the material and work out how we might be able to create a play with them. Um, I, I, I'm really thrilled to be able to work with Jude because she and I kind of cross paths um, on a podcast we created at Dash Arts during the pandemic. And I so enjoyed our conversation and the ideas that she brought to the podcast. It's really when I, when, when I started to think about who would be the perfect collaborator for us on our public house, um, she, came, she was kind of immediately came to mind. So um, it's lovely to have her with us. Uh, so my name is Jude Christian and I am lots of things. I am a writer and a director and a theatre maker and a dramaturg. Um, I also recently did a law conversion degree, so I'm theoretically a kind of law student kind of. Um, and yeah, just sort of general person interested in the world. Uh, and what I understand my role to be on this project is um, a writer, but I think a writer in a very collaborative sense of sort of absorbing um, absorbing the material and working really, really closely with the rest of the team and, and I guess thinking about the piece having a real uh, feedback into its community. Like I think, like, you know, playwriting kind of takes a variety of forms and sometimes it's about very personal self-expression about sort of drawing from the world and then giving your own vision back on it. And I think there's something in this that feels like it's 
entering into the spirit of the project and trying to continue giving a voice to all of the participants um and yeah hopefully digesting everything that happens bringing together something really coherent and joyful that we can put out in front of people um yes and then the background sound is also being provided by Joni who is my two-month-old daughter uh, who's joining the meeting in a kind of uh breastfeeding capacity that's her main job is snacking <laughs> well, it's lovely to hear those little noises in the background, but largely also to meet her for the first time. So welcome, Joni, as well. Um, and, and and that's exactly what how I understand your role to be on the project, too. So I'm glad we're in the same place. And just, I guess, a lovely bit of context, given that we're doing a podcast together, is that you and I met on a podcast because we were. I was researching the world of the Dutch playwright Felix de Roy, and you at the time were working, working on a project, a kind of Dutch-British project. And we first met talking about kind of theatre making and internationalism and kind of identity and nationalism and I so enjoyed talking to you like nearly what nearly three years ago I guess so um what is it about our initial vision of our public house which excited you so I think firstly as you said I had such a good time talking with you on the podcast before and I think a lot of our thoughts around um theatre as well as a lot of the conversations that we were having felt really rich and exciting um and I think I like work which is really deeply thought and really deeply researched. Like there was such an integrity to the process that you were talking about that wasn't about sort of saying, do you know what, I've read a couple of newspaper articles and I've had a couple of chats in the pub and I have a thesis on society that we will now just unfold on the general population. You were really talking about going and spending the time learning and listening and being ready to be surprised and to find out things that were contradictory and messy and nuanced and delicate. Um, and that, yeah, I like work that has that kind of bedrock of thinking behind it. But then the other thing that really sold it was when you were talking about pubs and public spaces and turning up on people's turf and wanting to make something accessible. Because I think there's a nationwide debate that we want to be having. Um, I think, I think theatre can take so many different forms and do think it can happen in a lot of different spaces. I think... There are times when you want to go into a very, very specific, very held environment to watch a piece of work. Um, but the idea of going, we want to create something that is robust, that can tour around and rock up in a lot of different places and properly speak with communities. Yeah, that felt really exciting. I think the other thing was I mentioned earlier that, yeah, as well as sort of like living in theatre land, um, that I recently did a law degree, which was a bit... There were lots of reasons for it. I think partly because I was like, maybe I want to be a lawyer, I don't know. And I, in my ridiculous brain, I was like, the easiest way to find out is to do a two-year law conversion course. Um, and I found it so exciting and fascinating and sort of like heartbreakingly wonderful. Um, and I think the, one of the things that was a bit of a spur for it was me realising when it comes to sort of uh, politics and political activism and the real complexity of the way that our current government operates in its use and control of power I suddenly sort of was growing to understand the importance of the legal profession and particularly like during Brexit and the years that came after it I just sort of became really obsessed with watching BBC Parliament basically and realising how much the legal profession comes into conversation with the government in ways that I didn't quite understand um, and as part of that course I learned a lot about public law and I learned a lot about how laws get made um, and I guess the the interplay between parliament and the people that we elect to parliament the way that those people speak 
on behalf of themselves, but also theoretically, hopefully, ostensibly on behalf of the people, like their constituents, the people who did or didn't elect them. Um, and then they create the the laws by which all of us have to live in this country to a greater or lesser extent. You know, you can you can choose to live outside the law, but there are consequences to that. Um, and so I, I guess when, Josephine, when we started talking and you were like, I want to create a project in which the power of rhetoric is put back in the hands of ordinary people, in which that kind of that permission and platform to speak with authority um, and to put forth ideas that are given that sense of weight and importance, um, to invite people to speak about society and values and what they believe to be right and wrong and what they believe to be important or um, vital. It just felt, it felt like something that we desperately need as a country. and so, yeah, I was sold. Basically, it's it's such an exciting project. Um, Jude, we I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you to to Joni, but also because um, it's a bit it's not it's not the best of lines, and I'm really sorry, but I'm really looking forward to hanging out with you in person. Yeah, I can't wait to see you guys and have a big catch up, and um, I hope it all goes brilliantly. All right, I'll see you soon. The clean air speed of 60 mile an hour between uh, between the M1 Rotherham and M18 is a totally useless. It's totally useless because if you go slower, you are in the area for a lot longer, so much more more pollution. And if you go faster, you are out of the air quicker. Uh, hold on a bit. <laughs> so all of the all of all they've done uh, with this scheme is increased pollution, right? And anybody who says it's cleaning the air is probably inhaling car fumes. Are you sick of being skint? Tired of too much tax? Exhausted by extortionate energy bills? Working too much, too long and too hard for too little? What if I told you there's a simple solution that could solve it all? Burn the billionaires. A huge, huge thank you to every single person who has joined us as part of our public house workshops and has um, shared their wonderful reflections with us for the podcasts and for the project. I'm really thrilled to be able to welcome at least 18 of the participants we've met from across from the country, from Cornwall to Sheffield, um, to uh, a couple of events in November, uh, events that are called Speak Out. They are an opportunity to hear the voices and the speeches of our participants, but also really to sort of put that into context with um, some speechwriters and activists and academics and politicians who could help us understand like the power of rhetoric, why we need to speak and how we can speak and who we're speaking for. Um, They're going to be some amazingly exciting events with great conversation and some brilliant speeches and they're happening at home in in Manchester and the Tabernacle in London at the end of November and you can find out information about who's speaking at what event on our website dasharts.org.uk My enormous thanks to Alan and Henrietta for being phenomenal partners in crime for us at Dash Arts to really help us to unlock these extraordinary ideas, voices around the country. To our wonderful producer, Christina Catalina. To our fantastic and podcast producer, Marie, who's also been travelling the country with us, um, capturing some of these ideas. How have you found it, Marie? 
It's been ch- challenging, moving. I'm, I feel so grateful to have been let into these communities and to meet these people. Uh, I, I can't tell you how excited I am for the next stages and to hear some of these speeches on the stage and also how much the participants who we've met really want to be heard and they're so excited to be in this project. So, yeah, what a wonderful thing to be involved in. That really put you on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Our Public House workshops have been funded by an amazing funding partnership from the Arts and Humanities Research Council and Arts Council England and the Three Monkeys Trust and many, many wonderful individuals who've gone with us on the journey. So it's really thanks to all of you and I'm so looking forward to sharing more of the speeches through the podcast over the next few months and live at our events and to seeing you all there. Thank you.